0: Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing.
1: Oh, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm joined by our co-host, Susan Walker of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan.
2: Hello there, Bill.
1: How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you today?
1: I'm great. And you ready for a really hot story today?
2: I am in the hottest yeah. growing states of America.
1: Darn right. Well, the hot growth is our story today. Hot growth in states, counties, and cities. You know, in the wake of the pandemic, we've seen areas, especially in the South and West, grow their populations even faster than many expected. Florida and Texas together added about 1 million people last year. 1 million, think of that. And the 10 fastest growing counties in 2022, they were all Southern and Western. Pretty much the same holds true for cities. Now, this growth presents enormous opportunities for governments. Enormous, but also challenges, enormous challenges. Not having enough schools and roads and affordable housing equity issues, also dealing with the costly impact of climate change on individuals, communities, and entire regions. These are topics that really fixate our entire panel, and to get to these waiting issues, we've brought together experts from many of the fastest-growing areas in America. I'll have more about our panel in just a moment, but first a few words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites and also on the special briefing podcast. As usual, we've taken your questions in advance and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, special briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. So let's get down to work. Leading off our discussions today is Steve Adler, former mayor of Austin, Texas, the 11th biggest city in the U.S., Steve, by the way, was one of the recent winners of Penn IUR's 2023 Lawrence C. Neustorf Urban Leadership Prize. So congratulations, Mr. Mayor. Joining Mayor Adler today is fellow Texan Daryl Martin, administrator of Dallas County, Texas. Then for the big picture, we'll turn to Matt Chase, CEO and Executive Director of the National Association of Counties, or NACO. From Georgia, please welcome Atlanta Regional Commission CEO and Executive Director Anna Roach, And from Idaho, live from the National Association of State Budget Officers spring meeting, we welcome Budget Director Alex Adams from Idaho, America's second fastest growing state. And now to start things off, let me hand the mic to Susan.
2: Well, thank you very much, Bill. And we have to begin with two people who are coming from Texas, which is, along with Florida, one of the buyers for recent fastest growth. But Texas has been growing fast for some time now, particularly the city of Austin, and it's my great honor to bring to the panel today Mayor Steve Adler, who, as Bill just said, just last week, we have the great honor of presenting to him the Nussdorf Urban Leadership Award at the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Mayor Adler has been in the forefront of growth challenges for two terms since 2015 and then termed out and is in a great position to talk to us about Responding to challenges, some which are harder, some which perhaps present opportunities as well. Mayor
3: Susan Bill, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you, and I and I applaud you and, and tell you how important it is your focus on cities. I really do love cities and believe so much of what is happening that is innovative and creative is happening in in our city petri dishes around the country and certainly over time we see a greater move to urban population kind of disrupted a little bit with covid perhaps but you see that trend all over the the world and cities are both benefiting from that population increase and being challenged by it and you're right i mean austin is one of the extreme examples of that many of texas's cities are fast growing and among those fast growing over the last 10 years austin metropolitan area has been the fastest growing in the in the country. Hard to maintain that number one spot over that length of time, just because the, the denominator in that equation changes every year. And that's done wonderful things for our community in bringing opportunity, bringing jobs, bringing the power that comes with the resources. That's an exciting, vibrant place to live, but that has also come with challenges. Chief among those is housing prices. We are the poster child for rapidly increasing housing prices. That means lots of things. That's the single largest factor that coincides with increased populations experiencing homelessness in your community. But it also leads to gentrification, that leads to displacement. We're losing people and we're losing diversity. And if we're gonna maintain the magic that I think is Austin, that's something we have to do something about. We built more houses per capita last year than any city in the country, and it still wasn't enough. We're gonna have to do a better job with the culture wars, with the Land Development Code, so that we can build more densely and higher in our main community areas within the city, especially to be able to build dense populations so that more and more parts of our city are walkable, because it's needed on just quality of life issues, including climate change mitigation issues, we have to do a better job with the administrative processes in our city. But we need more than just housing. We need infrastructure all around as we have populations that increase. For the longest time in Austin, because we all love this city and don't want it to change, our unofficial policy was to not invest in infrastructure on the belief that if we didn't do it, people would stop coming. It doesn't work that way. People still come anyhow. And you just find you don't have the infrastructure you need. When I got elected, in, in, 2015, transportation was the big issue. In 2016, we did a $720 million bond to devote to transportation infrastructure. That bond in 2016 was more than the city had done cumulatively in bonds over the preceding 20 years. We're behind the eight ball and catching up. We've done things through the last eight years, like uh, going to the voters and getting them to vote almost 20% increase in property taxes to also fund a public mass transit system. And now we have about $25 billion in transportation infrastructure projects alone happening in the city. But we also know that building infrastructure generally isn't all that it is? You can induce demand and induce congestion, so you have to be smart and provide options and alternatives in transportation. We're dealing with a lot of climate change things. We had record droughts and record floods. We had a city that had its power off in many parts of the city for over a week. We've had two and a half citywide water boils over the last eight years, and a city with a population of a million people. But we're working hard on that as our population goes up, our our energy consumption is going down. Our water consumption is going down as we're being able to drop our per capita usage. We know the importance of that in fighting climate change. I love cities. Cities are the incubators intervention, the boiler rooms for economic growth. And in Texas, one of our best benefits as we live in a state that many cities are expanding, doing well. ours chief among them It's also our biggest challenge right now. I'd like to have Texas with a diversified portfolio of cities for the same reason you have a diversified retirement account. But our state legislature doesn't agree with that. So we're in the middle of the culture wars right now. And I know that that's hurting us with the kinds of folks who would otherwise self-select to live in Austin. They're putting pressure on us in, in terms of putting limitations on the revenue that cities can raise, again, focused on this urban-rural divide that you see in our country just being magnified in, in Texas. But Austin's a magical place. We have the best breakfast tacos in the world. Don't listen to San Antonio, they lie. The music is all around, and we're pushing hard.
2: Well, thank you, Mayor. I'm sorry we can't hear some of that music We're sharing some of the tacos, but you're giving us a flavor nonetheless. And it's now my great pleasure to turn to another part of Texas and to Daryl Martin, who's County Administrator of Dallas. Dallas has been a part of Texas that has grown, grown, grown for a long time, and for a long time without an increase in housing prices. But recently, that's not the case. Dallas, too, is facing affordability and many issues. Please, Daryl, tell us about the challenges and your responses.
4: Good morning. And again, thank you guys for inviting me, Bill. Susan, I really appreciate you guys inviting me to be a part of this panel. And to my good friend, Mayor Steve, I'd like to differ with you just a little bit. I believe counties is where it's happening, but we can have that argument at another time. But um, let me just talk a little bit about Dallas, Fort Worth. This metro region is probably one of the fastest-growing regions in the nation, depending on what metric you're reading. We're listed as the third or fourth largest in the nation. But We talked about growth, and despite this growth, the city of Dallas and Dallas County in particular has actually lost some population. It's negligible at this point, you know, about 1.4% and a half a percent respectively, but we have lost a little bit of population. But the population loss is actually the result of the growth to the north, the south, and the east. All of my sister cities and counties all around us are growing tremendously. But nevertheless, all roads still go through Dallas, and Dallas is still the hub of great entertainment, large employers, and cultural activities, which which continues to place a real increased strain and burden on my infrastructure and services. A little bit about Dallas, we're about 955 square miles. We consist of 31 cities. We have a small, unincorporated population of about 7,000 to the south. We are the second largest county in the state of Texas, right behind Harris County, which is Houston. And with all due respect to Mayor Adler again, I believe Dallas is the best place to live and do business. We've had two consecutive years of reductions in violent crime here in Dallas, and our thanks to our chief of police, Chief Garcia, and our sheriff, Sheriff Marion Brown, murders, rapes, aggravated assault has been down over the last two years. And like the mayor said, we are one of the most diverse communities in the nation with more than two-thirds of our population representing one or more traditional minority groups, with Hispanics, of course, being the largest in that group in fact we've just been required by the state to print our election ballots in addition to english and spanish we now have to print them in vietnamese so i actually had to hire a vietnamese staff to help us with that over the last election cycle but like the mayor said we also face challenges and we've seen an overall four percent reduction in homelessness this year but we are experiencing an increase in homelessness actually among our veterans our youth and our families, which I believe is in part due to the housing affordability crisis. The median price of a home in Dallas County has actually doubled in the last decade. And in the last two years, and I believe, of course, this has had something to do with COVID and that's coming out of COVID, rents have soared by about 30%. And when you add all this together, the lack of inventory of homes on the market, the rising cost of living and the increase in interest rates has made homeownership difficult in our area and almost impossible for families living on the margins. We've used some of our ARP funds to create public-private nonprofit partnerships to develop about 2,000 affordable housing units throughout the county. That's not nearly enough, but it's what we could afford to do. We also will only participate in housing TIF projects, uh, tax increment finance projects, that include a percentage of affordable units in new planned housing developments or affordable rental units and multifamily development projects. Mental health continues to be a struggle for large metro areas, and it's definitely a struggle with us. And I'm sure that as well has been exacerbated by the COVID crisis. A little bit about my jail. We have a jail capacity of approximately 7,200 in our population in our jail hovers around 6,000 over the last few years. But when you add in our female population, which has to be separate from the male population and our bed classifications, we are technically full. And at any one time, about 40% of the population is deemed mentally ill or have mental crisis. And approximately 350 inmates right now in my jail are in need of treatment services at one of our state mental health facilities in order to restore competency in order for them to have their day in court. So this is a crisis for us, and we recently filed a lawsuit against the state for not providing care to these inmates, which by state law is a state responsibility. But like many places, we suffer with limited treatment beds and services for those in need. The state treatment facility, which not only serves the DFW region, but many of the counties east and north of Dallas County has only 214 beds and only 101 forensic commitment beds, which is not nearly enough. Last, but certainly not least, I want to talk a little bit about Southern Dallas County, which hosts one of this region's most attractive areas for growth and economic development over the next 40 years. This area recently renamed the Dallas County Inland Port region is approximately 120 square miles and is estimated approximately $1.3 trillion worth of goods will eventually pass through this area annually. The area currently hosts a state-of-the-art union Pacific Intermodal Facility, and with the proximity of three major interstates, more than 93 percent of the U.S. population can be reached by truck from this facility within 48 hours. The port includes a million-square-foot automated grocery distribution center for Walmart, which will be their largest in the nation, which is due to be completed within the next few months. We just approved a million-square-foot Nike distribution center, yes, Nike the shoewear, and a 350,000-square-foot automated grocery fulfillment center for Kroger is also in the area. In addition, like many places, Amazon has over 12 million square feet of distribution space in North Texas, and three of those DCs are in South Dallas, in the Inland Port, with nearly 3 million square feet of space. We also, of course, have Whirlpool, Procter & Gamble, L'Oreal, and a number of other major distribution centers here in South Dallas. And this is just a sample of the expansion that's occurring in our Inland Port. The Inland Port with the county as the lead is currently working closely with Plaquemines Port District in Louisiana to be the main connection port from this developing large seaport in Louisiana. This connection also will have some challenges, though, it will exponentially increase both truck and train traffic in the Inland Port, which will significantly impact our air quality standards. The DFW Metro Region has failed to meet the minimum national ambient air quality standards for the last 25 years. Fortunately, there are three driverless truck companies, Waymo, Kodiak, and Aurora experimenting using the DFW corridor for driverless lane routes. And if you've ever seen an 18-wheeler riding down the road with nobody in the driver's seat, it's kind of scary, but it's happening here in North Texas. Our Council of Governance has also been in discussion with large trucking companies to pilot hydrogen fuel trucks and electric trucks. We're committed to addressing significant impacts of climate change, and I'm sure you've all noticed the South has experienced tremendous amount of weather events over the last few years, and this year has been one of the worst. Tornadoes seem to be a regular occurrence all over the South. As a matter of fact, we spent last night with sirens going off in much of North Texas and Central Texas, and we're expecting more tomorrow night. We recently passed an environmental and sustainability plan to do our part to address climate issues we recently completed construction of two government centers and received lead silver status on these facilities and we have just recently completed a 170 million square 170 million dollar renovation of our large flagship county records building here and we were just notified a couple of weeks ago we received lead gold status on this by the US green building council we are aggressively installing electric charging stations at all of our facilities and slowly replacing our county fleet with electric vehicles. And I recently challenged my fleet director that Dallas County fleet would be 100% electric by 2030. And you can imagine the looks I got from my sheriff and public works and road and bridge crews when I made that statement, but we have to make the effort. So thank you very much again. I appreciate it and look forward to the questions.
1: Well, thank you so much, Daryl. When I think of, of a driver this 18-wheeler, I kind of start to shake, but I'm willing this, this will happen. Just want to let you all know, this is a reminder, you're tuned into Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and IUR. The archived editions of this and all past Special Briefing can be found on both of our websites or at the Special Briefing Podcast. And now, let's welcome Matt Chase with The View from NACO. Matt?
5: And also a special thank you to Daryl Martin from Dallas County for joining us. I just want to provide a little bit of national context. You heard from two great city and county leaders and One of the things from a city and a county perspective is we are operating under the rules set by state constitutions and state laws. And some counties are what we call a Dillon Rule County, where the county can only do what the state allows. And some have what are called Home Rule, where they have much more flexibility and control over their decision making, particularly around things like zoning and land use. And so the authorities really matter to the decision making and our ability to plan for growth. Also for county governments, we often have certain roles and responsibilities in the unincorporated part of a county versus the incorporated part of a county where there might be a city or a town. And so that really is important to understand the roles and responsibilities. When it comes to our counties, 50% of the American population lives in 130 large urban counties, such as Dallas. Yesterday, we had in our largest county in the country, Los Angeles County, It's got 10 million people in the county, the same size as Georgia or North Carolina, with 88 cities within the county. So how they manage growth is gonna be very different than other communities. When it comes to growth, it's important to understand what are the incentives of county government? We are primarily a property tax-based government. We like new houses because you can have an honest assessment of the value of that property. We've got 44 states where the state legislature has capped our property tax values and how we assess and how we tax existing properties. So when homes are sold or they're new units, we can reassess those at full value. And so the incentives for counties in most states are to try and build new units. Unfortunately, as a country, according to Freddie Mac, we're about 3.8 million units short, which is driving up this housing affordability crisis, but we certainly have the incentives to try and build new units. Some of the challenges that we have is this explosive growth is expensive. Both counties and K through 12 school, like I said, rely on property taxes. Infrastructure is really expensive. One of the key issues that we're dealing with is home developers will often build substandard roads in their neighborhoods and in these new developments then they wanna turn over those roads to the county government, and yet they don't meet our code. And so we're trying to build better relationships with that community and really pre-plan and pre-workout deals so that if infrastructure is gonna to transfer to the counties, that it's already up to our codes that we need. What we're also finding is the areas of the country that are really growing tend to be the suburban or the exurban areas around these major metropolitan areas. And we're really starting to see real tension between deploying new clean energy, like solar and wind farms, versus housing development, versus agricultural land. And there's starting to be real tension, including communities that are trying to embrace clean energy. They're now becoming concerned that we're giving up our precious farmland to do that. And so these are real conflicts that local elected officials need to deal with. Even within the more dense urban areas, we're having really important, yet often contentious discussions around the missing middle housing. For example, I live in Arlington County, Virginia. We're having very intense discussions about how we do rezoning and how we really plan for more housing that's affordable. So I'll just wrap up and say with this growth, we need to remember there's two sides to the ledger. Yes, there's often more revenue, but as Daryl pointed out, we're having more and more resident demand and expectations for public services. We've got our traditional services like behavioral health and health and infrastructure, but we're being pulled into more and more different services that people need. And as Daryl also mentioned, about a third of our counties are facing natural disasters that rise to the level of FEMA or presidential disaster declarations. And so as we rebuild these communities, we're often looking at our building codes and how we become more resilient. And of course, that's more expensive. And so how do we balance that, pay for it now versus pay for it later? So really look forward to the discussion and to the Q&A section. And thank you again.
1: Well, thank you, Matt. We're going to drill down to some of these issues because we have a whole bunch of audience questions just on the issues that you and Daryl and Steve have have brought up. But you don't want to listen to me. You want to listen to Anna Roach from the Atlanta Regional Commission to talk about zero in now on one big city region and talk about how all these issues are affecting you and your growth.
6: Oh, goodness. Thank you, Bill. Before I jump into my remarks and at the risk of starting a nationwide war here. I'm going to respectfully disagree with Steve at the city level, Daryl at the county level, and Matt at the national level to say, frankly, what I believe is regions are where it's at. So we'll, we'll continue that healthy discussion and debate after this. But again, thank you so much to the Institute for pulling us all together. This is an incredibly important discussion. I can frankly almost ditto what everybody has remarked so far, for the Metro Atlanta region. And at the Atlanta Regional Commission, we're responsible for managing and planning for that growth. And we have somewhat of a three-pronged approach. The first is to understand where the growth is happening or accelerating in our region. And then we have to examine some of the forces or the sources and driving factors of that growth as we look to plan for it, right? And then most significantly, we have to take a look at what are the threats to successful absorption of that sustainable growth and how can we do that so that everybody is prospering. And the threats, the three threats that we're paying very close attention to in Metro Atlanta, the first is access to critical infrastructure. Right. The second is equity and policy. And we, we know that because we have been paying attention to where we're seeing the growth, right? Uh, there's a significant portion of our Asian and Hispanic population that are almost doubling in their share of the population, according to our projections. And then the third piece is, curiously enough, emerging technology, looking closely at how artificial intelligence and EV toll and electrification, which is happening now, will affect our planning for this growth. So Let me dive a little bit into a few details about Metro Atlanta and what we're seeing. So like many of the Sunbelt regions, Metro Atlanta is growing fast. In recent years, we've been growing faster than any large metro area in the nation, of course, except for Dallas and Houston. Looking to the future, ARC's latest population forecasts say that we will add about 1.8 million people. To Metro Atlanta by 2050. And to put that in context, that's like all of Metro Nashville moving to Metro Atlanta. And we're seeing growth both inside and out. The city of Atlanta has been growing strong for at least the past decades, according to our population estimates, and young professionals continue to want to be in metro Atlanta. This is where the action is, but that's if they can afford it. Like many other cities, counties, and regions, we are struggling with affordability. We're struggling to lose that as one of our selling points in metro Atlanta, and so we're looking very closely at that as well. Apartments are booming in places like Midtown and along our world-class and world-famous Beltline. As I think it was Matt that mentioned, our ex-burbs, our suburbs, are also booming too. We've seen places like Forsyth and Cherokee counties experience growth that we hadn't seen in previous decades. And those are counties on the north side of town. If you look at the south side of town. We're also seeing Henry County as well and Clayton County experience growth at record levels in most recent decades. We do expect, and our population forecasts haven't been finalized yet, so this is a bit of a preview for this group, but we do expect that our rate will slow, be slower actually than we had previously predicted in our population forecasts. And there are tons of reasons for this that are not unique to Metro Atlanta, our birth rate is slowing. We're seeing that trend nationwide. Migration is also slowing down. And that's happening not just in metro Atlanta again, but for other parts of the country as well as internationally. So very consistent with global trends. And we have backed down our population forecasts as we see these trends accelerate. So on our previous population forecast that was developed just four years ago, We predicted that the Atlanta region, based on our scientific data analysis, would grow by adding 2.6 million people by 2050. We've, again, backed that down from 2.6 to our latest forecast showing just a population growth of $1.8 million. So we are still growing. We're still growing pretty fast. That growth is just not showing the level of aggression as previously anticipated. So looking forward Again, I talked about the way to manage that growth is to think about what are the things that threaten our successful absorption of that growth. I'll start with equity. I mentioned before in sort of the prelude to my remarks as I'm looking at our population estimates here. That we're seeing that the Hispanic population as well as our Asian population, our 2050 forecasts show significant increases in those two racial and ethnic groups as a share of our population. Why is that important? Because if we do not prepare our communities to be able to absorb people who don't look the same, who don't worship the same, who don't speak the same, then we're not going to sustainably And effectively absorb that growth. So we are looking very closely at equity as we implement not just transportation infrastructure dollars, but as we implement many other factors of growth across our region. So economic activities have really boomed on the north side of our metro Atlanta area where it's been predominantly white. We see a a wide racial spatial divide, north versus south in metro Atlanta. It's a story of, of many regions. And we're looking To change that, most of the economic activity and growth has been on the north side of our region. The city of Atlanta, if you all have been paying attention, has the highest level of income inequality in the nation. And all the leaders in Metro Atlanta are acutely aware of this. And we are all putting our heads together to figure out how this does not become the headline for Atlanta in the years to come. In addition to the income inequality rates, we also know that Metro Atlanta on a whole as the second lowest rate for upward economic mobility. And that is just not sustainable long-term. So we think about success in terms of absorbing our population growth, if we continue on that trajectory, that's going to spell disaster for our region. And so we are looking at several different ways in order to address that, working with our banks, the metro chambers, and the like. In addition to those high-level things, we're making sure that as we, as an MPO, address and implement infrastructure investments such as transportation dollars. We are making sure that we are emphasizing how to connect underserved communities with job opportunities. You know, in the past... When you think about transportation implementation, you focus on mobility, you focus on congestion mitigation. Well, our focus on that thinking is not going to assist us in addressing this equity piece. And so we are thinking differently about what we emphasize when we invest in transportation infrastructure across our region. We're also being intentional about how our community planning work can help spark Economic activity in underinvested areas. And so we are doing innovative things like developing a new concept called Aerotropolis Atlanta that has been successful. It's been in the works for many years and it's been in operation for several years. But basically, it's focused on how do we spark growth and economic mobility in the neighborhoods surrounding our airport, which have been historically underinvested. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, another incredible challenge in Metro Atlanta is housing. And unlike Mayor Adler, who has built more houses and still can't meet his demand, in Metro Atlanta, we're simply not building enough housing to keep up with our population growth. It is a fact that we all know and it's impacted affordability. And when you layer on the increase in interest rates, it's just exacerbating the affordability issue in Metro Atlanta. A new home construction in Metro Atlanta is about a fifth of what it was in earlier decades. So a real issue here that we're putting our heads together to address as well. And even if you're not in the home buying market, similar challenges exist in the rental space as well. Young people have to move further and further outside of our region in order to be able to access their jobs that are within our region. And so that's not sustainable. Finally, we have to factor in some of the other big trends that all of us on this panel must address. I can't get into every single thing that we are tackling in Metro Atlanta, but we've touched on things like climate change. We've touched on the other panelists have. And and again, I mentioned before new technology. What does that mean for us as we look to plan for growth in our region that artificial intelligence is accelerating? EV toll, which is something that we've been studying at the Atlanta Regional Commission, that's EV electric vehicle takeoff and landing. As we build, how do we build for the future to accommodate those new technologies? Those are all things that we are, thinking about in our long-range transportation planning. And I look forward to talking a little bit more about that and the other things that you'll bring up in your questions. So thanks again, Bill.
1: Well, thank you very much, Anna. My head is spinning. Let's turn now to Idaho. It's the, as Alex pointed out before the show, over the past 10 years, it is the fastest growing state. Last year, it was the second fastest growing state. We all think of blue skies and great hiking and skiing but maybe not of some of the challenges of growth like transportation, housing, education, public health. Alex, you run the budget. Tell us how you're dealing with this.
7: Certainly, thank you, Bill. Happy to give the state's perspective on this panel and happy to throw Idaho's hat into the ring as the greatest place to live and do business. And certainly people are voting with their feet. As you said, since 2010, we are the fastest growing state population-wise. And most of that growth has been inbound migration. Since 2010, we've also third in personal income growth, third in real GDP growth, and second in wage growth. So, certainly a lot of opportunities and challenges, as everybody else has noted. On the opportunity side, we've seen revenue booming. Over the past decade, average annual growth was about 5.7%. And then in 2021, we saw 24% revenue growth. So, about four years of growth in one year. And then we top that off in 22 with another 24% revenue growth on top of that previous high. So sort of the challenge that comes with that is trying to have farsighted fiscal stewardship and look down the road and structure a budget that will balance over time, notwithstanding good short-term information. What our approach has been is to assume a lot of it is one time in nature. So our Revenue, for example, rejects that we'll have about $5.5 billion in ongoing revenue. And we've structured our ongoing expenses at $5.1 billion. So we've kept kind of an operating gap as a cushion for uncertainty if things continue to slow down. And then any of the surplus above that $5.5 billion, we used for one-time capital. And then we've used most of our ARPA for capital expenditures. And then we're using a lot of the IIJA dollars for capital expenditures in addition to having to plan for the growth, Idaho is a state that has significant backlogs. We had a deferred maintenance backlog at state buildings, about $900 million. We had a bridge backlog of $600 million, bridges that were rated as structurally poor or older than 50 years. We have a gap in school facilities. So a lot of what we've been trying to do is catch up and plan for that growth simultaneously, So, kind of the dual challenges i'll talk about how we've done that with transportation just as one illustrative example so as i said we had 600 million dollars backlog in bridges we've used our surplus position to cover 400 million dollars of those bridges we've been able to clear out that backlog of two-thirds of bridges in just the past two years and construction is starting on many of them across the state and then moving forward We've used some of our ongoing revenue. We've actually devoted $200 million of ongoing revenue to maintain our roads and bridges over time. We've quantified what was needed in terms of annual ongoing maintenance to maintain what we have. So we're catching up and planning for what's needed moving forward. The other biggest focus for us as a state has been education. We've traditionally ranked low on rankings per pupil funding. And a state with as many borders as we share with Washington and Oregon and others, teacher pay has been something that we've really been trying to catch up on and then accelerate on. So, just one example this year, we did a 16% year over year growth in education funding. So, we put 330 million additional into our public schools with a heavy emphasis on teacher pay. So, what that means for Idaho is we're going to go from bottom 10 in teacher pay to targeting the top 10 in teacher pay nationwide so we can provide the best teachers and the best environment for our students. So just again, emphasizing what what others said about the challenges of uh, growth, I talked a little bit about from the state perspective, how we've tried to navigate the one-time nature of some of the revenue versus the ongoing needs, and look forward to a robust discussion on these topics, Bill. I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thank you. And Susan,
2: let's kick it off. And Bill, I'll start with a question which Anna sparked, but I think it's apparent on some level for all of the levels of government and leaders that we have here with us today. And that is that uh, housing affordability is a problem and growth farther out is happening even faster than in the city, although, of course, Austin is the city and it too may have this farther out pressures. So how do you, and maybe we'll start with you, Anna, because you mentioned talking about thinking about job opportunities in a way of overcoming equity issues through transportation, given the fact that young, particularly workers who can't afford that more expensive home closer in may have to spend more of their time in transit. How do you connect jobs to affordable housing? Anna, let's start with you, but then let's go through all, please, I'd like to hear from all of of our wonderful panelists. Anna?
6: Yeah, thanks, Susan. I want to hear from my peers as well. One of the reasons we visited Austin was because of the success that it had in that transit referendum that they did. Of course, a city is different from a region, and we have much more complicated governance structures around transit in Metro Atlanta. But you're absolutely right. I don't have a great answer for you. We are still struggling with that because we are struggling to accelerate transit expansion in Metro Atlanta. Everything we do seems to be at the margins but we are still working at it because we know that it's important for us to address this issue of affordability that we have since folks are moving out further. We do anticipate that two of our county jurisdictions will take on transit referenda in the next year or so, but we do see transit, a robust transit system as a way to try to address the housing issue. In addition to all the things that we're doing to make housing more affordable in Metro Atlanta, including a significant initiative taken on by the mayor of the city of Atlanta to begin to purchase a property that is sort of ripe for converting from commercial to residential. And so we're seeing a lot of innovation in the space of turning the corner on affordability. But quite frankly, I really do believe that transit is part of the solution to addressing access to jobs in the city centers. And so we are doing our best to do a better job at that.
2: Daryl, tell us about Dallas and the new port, the inland port and the job growth. There must be a quite impressive. What about workers and where they'll live, and more generally, in Dallas? Yeah, this.
4: That's a great question. That's been one of our huge challenges. because We don't have a housing population in that inland port area. So what we had to do is we started Inland Port Transportation Management Association and got together with our Dallas Area Rapid Transit and some of the cities and created a bus loop using a private carrier to actually go to where the employee base is, and that is in some of the other cities. We haven't reached out to the sister counties yet, but that's the talk. We would need to go probably south, further south into Ellis County and north into Kaufman County, I mean, east into Kaufman County, to try and pick that population up to bring them to the jobs. We just can't build housing fast enough in the inland port area. And to be honest, um, even in that 120 square miles, we are running out of land in that area as well as those huge distribution centers are coming. So we have to be creative in ways to go find the people and bring them to the jobs, which we're trying to do.
2: Right. So, Steve, you were talking about in Austin some moves to increase density. Can you describe what you've done and what perhaps needs to be done?
3: Sure, Susan. What we know is is that you can't just build roads and and build your way out of this challenge because it induces demand. You build a lot more roads into our downtown where right now we're 72% of our people are commuting alone in their cars. You build a lot more road. It's going to help with congestion, but all it's going to do is induce demand and property values and development at, at farther reaches are going to bloom because now people can get to downtown in 20 minutes from farther away, and you're going to have more people on the road. In a no matter of a few years, the roads will be just as full. You actually have to make structural changes, and one of the structural changes was addressed was coming up with choices like transit. That's why we did Project Connect. But in terms of density and and using the land planning to help with that challenge, one of the things that we did in that Project Connect, a $10 billion project for public transit, was we put a $300 million line item in it. That was designed only to address equity, only to address displacement and affordable housing, to to buy land around stations like Anna was talking about, to create housing opportunities so that the people that most need the the projects are able to take advantage of it. You design a project to encourage that. This project was designed where 70% of the affordable housing in the city is going to be within a 10 or 12 minute walk shed of the stations. But in terms of density, it's it's basically a land use question. It's changing your code so that you can build taller and more densely in those areas where historically there's been resistance to that. You, You still see that today? As people are trying to protect neighborhood character, which oftentimes is directly at odds with encouraging and saving diversity in a community. So we're fighting those cultural wars. You know, I find myself on preemption issues in Texas where the state's coming in, oftentimes trying to undo what Austin does after we've done it. And I now see the opposite happening on this one issue, both locally and nationally, where it may be that the states act to allow for greater density and, and height the end of compatibility standards and of parking minimums in our cities those things that would enable us to build more dense higher more located to downtown and it's kind of like almost doing a deal with the devil if you find yourself rooting for for preemption to help you on an issue like that it's hard
2: Wow, they, I are, in a, they are pushing ask, for preemption. Go,
1: go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I wanted to ask Alex about this this very issue. You've you've got some of the fastest growing housing prices in the nation. California and New York, which are not hot growth areas at all, they're dealing with the same issue of density. And can the state impose fair housing requirements, more dense requirements on suburbs that don't necessarily like it? So what's Idaho's solution for dealing with this continued influx of people, less affordability of housing? Do you go more dense? What's the state's role in all this?
7: Well, so any of the cities that you go to in Idaho, housing would be probably among their top three challenges that they're dealing with. It is one of the things that we hear loud and clear across the state. One of the debates is what is the state role? What is the local role? Yeah, the state has recently made a significant investment. We actually put a portion of our ARPA funds, $50 million into a revolving fund that our state housing authority is using to help spur the development of additional workforce housing with some rural set aside. So the state has inserted itself a little bit more into these to try to catalyze additional units. But it is also an area where we are seeing the market respond a little bit. In terms of new starts, we have seen a greater shift to uh, multifamily units versus uh, single. So certainly the market is responding to what they're seeing in Idaho.
1: I just want to ask a quick quick follow-up for Alex, because we had a question from one of your local journalists at the Idaho Statesman. You talked earlier about your revenue gains, which have been so enormous by any standards. And he asked, how do you gauge whether those tax whether those increased tax revenues are actually increasing commensurately with your growth and are the tax revenues going to keep up with the growth that's that's being generated? How do you balance that? I know you touched on it, but it's a a key question for a lot of hot growth areas where taxes have absolutely exploded. What's going to happen down the road and how do you plan for it?
7: It is the key question, Bill, and I'm sure everybody on this panel has dealt with the same issue. And as I said earlier, I mean, we've had to get a little bit more farsighted in how we're looking at our budget. We've historically forecasted revenue over time, five years to be exact, but Idaho didn't necessarily do a great job in the past of forecasting expenditures. So under this governor, we've started forecasting expenditures over the next five years. So those that vary based on population, Medicaid, for example, education, things like that. We've been forecasting those over five years and we're building budgets that will sustain over that time frame in a structurally balanced framework and as i said we also hedge you know anytime you forecast uh, revenue it's unlikely to hit that number on the nose. It's either going to be above or behind. So we've built some cushion into our budget. We leave large ending balances. We've maxed out our rainy day funds to the state legal max. We have about 21% of our budget in reserve. By paying off bonds and things like that, we've lowered our out-years expenses. But it's one of the questions that we grapple with on a daily basis. You know, One of the ways you look at it is per capita income. Our per capita income forecasts are on par with where they've been in the past. So we feel very comfortable about our ability to meet those ongoing needs that I spoke about earlier, education and transportation in particular, with some hedges for uncertainty that we all face. Susan, I'm going to turn it back to you.
2: Yes. Well, first of all, let me just ask the other panelists of that same question. The question is, just to repeat it, how do you make sure that the tax expenditures that come with growth are matched by tax revenues? But maybe the answer is you can't. You just have to respond. So do you see ways of beforehand attempting to make the two match, or is it response effectively and creatively? Perhaps we can start with you, Mayor, because you have had it decades of, of this kind of growth, and you already said that, no, you can't stop it. Is that where you underline that, or how do you respond uh, to no, it? No, you,
3: you, you can't stop it in a lot of ways you don't want to. I we go around the city, and then the single most frequent question we ask is, "Can you stop the growth?" And I only know one way to do it, and it's to make the city an undesirable place to live. In. And I don't, never wanted to be the mayor that successfully accomplished that. When you have population growth, and you have new building and new companies and new property value, new investment, that's going to add to. The revenue and, and for us it was having at such a, a level that it gave us considerable flexibility. We also had a community that recognized the need to, to invest in things like education and and opportunity and providing access in our city, evidence of the fact that our community has repeatedly approved the bonding and, and other financial managers to invest in in those areas, education, transportation, infrastructure on public safety and the like. But it's getting harder now that our legislature has come in and put revenue caps on what cities and counties can raise. And in fact, has set that cap below what the revenue increases are needed just to take into account inflation and increases in salary and other costs, which means that our legislature now has built in structural Efficiencies in our system that's going to require local governments to to go to the people and ask for additional measures, revenue support, in order to invest in community. We did that right after the legislature put in that cap, and that's how we went to the community and got the the vote to to spend money on that public transportation issue, but also on housing and active transportation uh, issues. And in this legislative session, it looks like now the, the legislature, I think, in some ways disappointed that we went to the people and won, are now requiring us to go back for a second vote to see if we can do it again in a kind of an unprecedented kind of way. So, so revenue is a challenge, especially in, in the political world we live in today.
2: Uh, Matt, Listen, you if I, if, yourself if, addressed that property tax base issues because 44 states cap yeah. property tax base. Can you expand on this perhaps challenge and ways yes. that states and locals maybe can respond to the challenge creatively? It yeah. sounds like right yeah. now they're at odds.
5: So I want to look at it through the lens of housing affordability. We actually have a task force right now that is, is really looking at housing. And we're looking at it from a global lens down to the local level. What has happened since COVID with remote work and hybrid work versus this huge demographic shift in the country with baby boomers migrating around the country, workers migrating? What is happening? And we've looked at everything from the impact of the federal interest rates to the role of private equity. If you're in Darrell's County or parts of Texas. 50% of home sales are now private equity purchases. The houses aren't even getting onto the market. What is happening with incentives for home ownership versus rental? And what does that do with community buy-in? We're looking at land values and how can counties use land that they own and convert it into housing? How do you repurpose malls and office buildings for housing, which is complex and requires a lot of different changes in thinking? we're even looking at the impact of the shared economy which has really taken a lot of long-term rental units off the market and converted them into short-term rental. And what is happening with tax policy? You take the state and local tax deduction which has been framed as a red state versus blue state, high tax versus low tax. What's interesting is single family homeowners are now capped at $10,000 deductions for income and tax, but yet landlords And private equity companies and businesses can deduct their full value of their property taxes. So we're looking at what are the incentives in the tax code that's really changing the mix of ownership versus rental and properties. So what we're really talking to with the states about are, you create the wrong incentives, you're gonna get the wrong outcome. And what we wanna do is build really prosperous communities and yet we're cutting back these fundamental building blocks one of the big things that we deal with with growth is stormwater. Nobody likes to talk about stormwater. It's not a sexy topic, but dealing with stormwater is very expensive. And when you start moving around land, it changes drainage patterns. And so one of the things that people hate are stormwater impact fees. But yet we want to have a safe environment. So what we're just hoping for to continue to have to have these robust, difficult conversations, but to really think through. What are the unintended consequences of some of these policies?
2: So I'm going to turn it back to you, Bill, in a moment. But what I just want to note is the extraordinary work that's going on that this panel demonstrates across all levels of government and indeed even working together. And I think the storm water drainage issues and the need for impact fees around that is just illustrative that this work is occurring at all levels, which is, of course, necessary. Bill, to you.
1: Well, thanks. And it happens that University of Pennsylvania, where Susan Susan is based, has a wonderful water institute that works on just these issues.
2: Bill, and we're going to do a program. We're putting it together now. So audience, questions for that program, let us know.
1: I'll be there with my bucket and my paddle. Can't wait. Let's put up the info slide because that's about it for another special briefing. If you want to contact panelists and our team, here's the info. You can also pick it up off our replay or just email any of us and we'll we'll get in touch. And so thank you so much, Susan, and thanks to all of our great panelists and to our great audience for joining us today. We'll be back on Thursday, May 18th with a special briefing on just the reverse of what we're talking about today, fiscal distress in cities and how to avoid it. Watch our websites and your email for your details. Thanks also again to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors and the Century Foundation, and special thanks to our production team, Graham Dowd, Noah ritzenberg Idalis Foster, Steve Klieg, Kate Nicoletti, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan.
0: You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local governments' finances in the wake of COVID-19, and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.